I finished a book uh, some time ago by Amity Schles, S-C-H-A-L-E-S, and it was a biography of President Calvin Coolidge. Now, ever since I was a little boy and I read about President Coolidge coming from Vermont, now as a little boy, that's why I liked him. He came from Vermont. And if you're wondering why I liked Vermont, it was because they had maple syrup. And the other thing was, so many of the Christmas cards we received were scenes from that part of the world. And so I got interested in President Calvin Coolidge. I did a, uh, what we called a report in school back in those days on President Calvin Coolidge. And I remember I got an A-plus on it, and I was so proud of it. But um, I've read several of his uh, biographies about him, and I just recently got his autobiography that I'm looking forward to reading. But one of the things that President Coolidge was known for was his economy with words. And I'll guarantee you that all of you wish I had his economy with words. One Sunday morning, he, had, he and his wife had gone to church while he was president. And when they got back to the White House, she looked at him, concerned that maybe he hadn't listened. She says, honey, what did the pastor preach on this morning? He said, he preached, preached on sin. She said, well, what do you have to say about it? He's again it. So that's pretty simply a great introduction to what this chapter is all about. Because so far, all of the visions that we've looked at, they've been about the blessings that are coming to Israel. They've been about the raising up, that God's raising up trusted leaders, godly leaders. They've been about how God is removing Israel's sin. They've just, how God's going to be a wall of protection around about them. But now we come to a chapter that... I have looked at a number of books that people have written about Zechariah, and some people even skip this chapter, but we can't afford to skip this chapter because this chapter deals with something that's of consequence to you and me and the world that we live in. So I've entitled the message tonight, God in the Nations. I think I could have also entitled, entitled it God in Culture because really what we're looking at is the culture tonight. So. Let's look tonight at the Word of God. I'm going to break up the chapter because it's two visions, but they fit together. I looked up again, and I saw a scroll flying through the air. What do you see, the angel asked. I see a flying scroll, I replied. It appears to be about 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. Now, I've tried to interject where I thought it was appropriate and help you understand some of the symbolism. This is a gigantic scroll, okay? The longest scroll that we have from Qumran, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, comes nowhere to being this large. This is the exact same size of the holy place. It is also the exact same size of the porch of Solomon at the temple where the law of God was read. So there's a lot of symbolism right here. Then he said to me, the scroll contains the curse that is going out over the entire land. One side of the scroll says that those who steal will be banished from the land. The other side says that those who swear falsely will be banished from the land. And this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says, I am sending this curse into the house of every thief, into the house of everyone who swears falsely using my name, and my curse will remain in that house and completely destroy it, even its timbers and stones." And then if you'll look at me with look with me to Matthew 5:17 where our Lord said, "Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to about to accomplish their purpose." So pray with me tonight. Father, 
In the precious and the holy name of Jesus, we thank you that you took the curse of sin upon you. We thank you, Lord, that you became sin for us in order that we could be saved, that you exchanged your righteousness for our sins. And because of you, Jesus, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. But never let us be as those that Paul addressed that shouldn't we sin more boldly then. Instead, help us, O oh God, to understand why you hate sin so much and open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to all that's in this powerful chapter tonight. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Like I said, I looked at a commentary by a very respected comment, commentator, I guess you would say, author, and I do have a lot of respect for him, but for some reason, he entirely skipped over this chapter. It's a tough chapter to read, especially when you read something like, I will destroy every timber and every stone in the home. I mean, that's a pretty powerful passage right there. I think the first thing that we need to see is God will judge sin. God will judge sin. And rather than tonight, because I think the sins of the nation become clear as you read the book, I thought maybe what I would do is not gloss over sin, but show you what it is that God desires for us so that you can see how sin damages and destroys what God wants for us. And when you see what God wants for us and you see what sin produces, then why in the world would anyone choose to sin? If the, One writer back in the 1980s said, to sin knowing what sin is is sheer insanity. That's a powerful statement if you think about it. To sin, knowing what sin is, is sheer insanity. Let's go to Psalms 128, one of my very favorite, favorite chapters in the Bible. How joyful are those who fear the Lord, all who follow his ways. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. Your wife will be like a fruitful grapevine flourishing within your home. Your children will be like vigorous young olive trees as they sit around your table. That is the Lord's blessings for those who fear him. May the Lord continually bless you from Zion. May you see Jerusalem prosper as long as you live. And may you live to enjoy your grandchildren. And may Israel have peace. Now that's a remarkable chapter. Because in six verses, you go from being a bride and groom to grandparents. And that's about exactly how fast life seems to go by. I can't believe that I'm the grandfather of four children, and I love them much. But if you'll take a moment, just circle some of these words in, in your uh, outline tonight that you have before you. Circle the word joyful. Circle the word enjoy. Circle the word prosperous. Circle the word flourishing. Your wife will flourish in your home. Circle the word vigorous. Then circle the phrase, the Lord's blessing. And then if you will, if you'll go all the way down and circle, enjoy your grandchildren. And then circle the word peace. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to enjoy all of that as you get older? You have no idea how many older people that I've talked to who are lonely, that had relationships they never healed, people they never reconciled with, and now they're, they're, they don't have maybe financial cares or financial worries, but they ask themselves, they've asked me, 
Pastor, what's it, what's it really all about? If, you know, am I just going to die alone? And unfortunately, many people do. You see, the life that we live is a life of faith. It's a life of trusting God. My wife told me something this evening that uh, just caused me to just be so proud and, and grateful to, for the kind of woman that God has given me as a wife. And, and I told her, I said, the reason that people are saying this and coming to you is because, number one, they respect you. Number one. Number two, they trust you. And number three, they love you. And Becky, that's one of the greatest reputations. Nobody could hope for a better reputation whatsoever. These blessings, though, only come to people who have faith. If you will look, it's impossible, at uh, Hebrews eleven six. it's impossible to please God without faith. For anyone who comes to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Now, later this evening, take your Bible or take these notes and go back and look at all of those blessings in Psalms 128. Again, it's just six verses. You can do this before you go to sleep tonight and maybe pick one of those blessings out for the next six days and just journal about it or look up some of the promises that God has for you in the Bible. But they come to people who believe him. The other hand, the other side of that coin, though, is if we try to live this life without faith in God, then we're going to experience the frustration and the judgment that comes upon sin. You see, God's standard for judgment, it is the Bible. The standard that God uses for judgment is the Word of God. If you remember that big flying scroll that was flying through the air, now, it's interesting what's on that scroll. On one side, there is the, there is the judgment for our relational damage that we've done to people. It represents how we have sinned against other people. On the other side is how we've sinned against God. Now think about the Ten Commandments. The first four of those commandments have to do with our relationship to God. The second, the second set of commandments, they have to do with our relationship with one another. The commandments, if you remember studying in the book of Exodus, they were inscribed on the front and the back of the stone tablets. Israel would have got this symbolism. And that's the reason that I, I try to stop and pause so that when you read these things, you just don't go, what does this mean? Because sometimes it can be a little difficult to understand, right? But when you stop to think, the, 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 the porch of uh, Solomon where, where the law was read, when you stop to think about the Holy of Holies, the priest, the high priest, could only go in the Holy of Holies once a year and could only go after the blood of a sacrifice was shed. You and I have access into the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the standard is still the word of the Lord. So wise people judge their lives by the Bible and not the culture. The culture is constantly changing. And so we don't look at and go, well, this is what the culture says. We look at it and say, this is what God's word says. Now, let me illustrate this. Sometimes people will say to me, and, and, and I tell, I say, I understand, you know, I'm in the same boat you are. I'm a fellow pilgrim with you. If you look down, my tracks are right beside your tracks. My footprints are right beside your footprints. If we were down south, we'd be walking barefooted right now because it was 78 sunny degrees at home today. So anyhow, but now they got tornadoes tonight, so don't feel too bad. But anyhow, here's the point. We all walk the same path. But sometimes people will say, well, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. When I get pulled 
let me rephrase that. If I got pulled, not that I haven't ever been pulled by a police officer, and I don't know where Keith is at, I don't go to the police officer. I haven't told a lie. I don't go to the police officer. I haven't killed anybody. I, I've been faithful to my wife. He could care less about the rest of the law. I just broke the law. I was speeding. And I will tell you this, I've never gotten a ticket that I didn't deserve. <laughs> There's been a lot of times I deserved a ticket and they were merciful and kind and, and let me go. But the point is, when, God, when we break the word of God, when we break the law of God, we're guilty, according to Romans chapter 1 and 2, of breaking the whole law of God. That's the reason the cross and the blood of Jesus is so important to us. Secondly, the judgment of sin is thorough and it's communal. It's thorough and it's communal. And the scripture, I think, really explains that right here, if you'll, you'll look with me. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, his word. It will enter the house or the curse that comes upon sin. It will enter the house of the thief, the person that has stolen from his neighbor, and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name that has taken God's name in vain. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and stones. Look at me for just a second. There is no such thing as my sin not affecting somebody else. My sin affects my wife. My sin affects my children. My sin affects my community, my church. It affects everyone. It affects those that, have, that, you know, that I have pastored or led and ministered to in times past. So sin is communal but also how God deals with sin is thorough. Because notice what it does. It enters that house and destroys it completely by both its timbers and stone. Unconfessed, unrepented sin will end up destroying a family, will end up destroying a home, it will end up destroying a marriage. The way we change our wicked ways, and, and let's be honest, that's an important word to understand right here. You know, I don't count any of you as wicked people, but all of our, all of our righteousness on our own is like filthy rags in the present. We dealt with that a couple of weeks ago. The judgment upon sin is thorough, and the only way to change that is through confession. That's the reason God had the sacrifices in the Old Testament for the people to come and make confession of their sin, restitution to one another. It's the reason we make our confession daily as we pray, Father in heaven, forgive us of our sins and forgive us those who've sinned against us because unconfessed sin will destroy you and the way you can find victory over that is through repentance and acknowledging what you've done wrong gives you the freedom to change. That's why confession and repentance, repentance is just simply agreeing with God. God, you were right. I am wrong. The next thing I'd like you to see is how committed God is to the holiness of his people. How committed God is to the holiness of his people. You know, and I know that word holy is such a negative word in our culture today because it smacks of people thinking, well, you just think you're better than you. I never describe myself to somebody as holy. I never go out and say, oh, I'm, I'm holy, you know. Um, it, it does smack of that because in times past, some Christians have acted like they were better than everybody else. 
I made a group of people angry here one time when I said, we are no better than any other lost person who's blaspheming God. And somebody came up along with a couple other people, how dare you tell us that we're no better than those sinners? I said, you aren't. I said, and your high opinion of yourself reveals a pride that stinks to high heaven. Now, either you repent or you'll bust hell wide open. I don't care how often you go to church. And so they were kind enough then after being insulted, they felt like, to sit down. We looked at the word of the Lord and they repented. I don't think they repented because they necessarily were yielding to my arguments. They feared God. They didn't want to go to hell, you know. God says he hates pride and his strongest word, Jesus' strongest words, he never called anybody a sinner. His strongest words were for religious people, especially religious leaders. You know, that puts the fear of God in me and how I live and how I teach and how I preach. So look at Hebrews 12, 29 from the message. I love the way this is translated. He's actively cleansing house, torching all that needs to burn, and he won't quit until it's all cleaned. God himself is fire. Now think about what you just read. The curse will enter the home where there's unconfessed sin, unrepented of sin. It will destroy it right down to the timbers and the stones. And God is saying he is torching all that needs to burn. He's cleansing so that your life, your home will be holy. Well, what is holy? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. I mean, all of these things, this is how God defines holiness. Holiness is not how I, you know, it's, it's not the outward things that are easy to manifest. It's easy for me to put on a reverend rig and stand behind a pulpit and appear to be holy. And you've heard me say this numbers of times. Standing behind a pulpit makes me appear a lot holier than what I am. It's easy to put on the outward things. That's why Jesus said the Pharisees, they love the praise of people in the marketplace. It's another thing to be loving. It's another thing to be forgiving. It's another thing to be a peaceable person and easy to get along with. It's another thing to be self-controlled. It's another thing to be gentle when you want to be rough or tough. These are the things that God defines holiness by. So he's committed to holiness in our thought life. Matthew 5, 27 through 30 tells us, Jesus says it's not just a matter of not committing adultery. It's a matter of not having adulterous thoughts. Well, and I shouldn't say just adulterous thoughts. It's, it's a matter of not fantasizing about somebody who's not your wife or your husband thinking that she would be better for you than your wife. Secondly, he wants our worship to be pure. It's the reason Pastor Corey takes a moment before we take communion to ask us to search our hearts. In this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 31, the Lord says, now, now look at me for just a second, because I didn't put the reference in there, but I really want you to get this. Look at it later. The Lord says the reason that some of you are sick and some have even died is because they're coming to communion. They're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What's he talking about? They haven't repented of their sins. They haven't confessed. They haven't made things right with people they should make things right with. He doesn't say they're lost and go to hell. He says, worship has to be pure. When we come into this place, we are coming into the Holy of Holies. We're coming to worship the Lord. When I kneel in prayer in my home, I'm coming into the Holy of Holies. And one of the songs we used to sing, 
I don't know if we sang it here or if we sang it in Georgia, but give us clean hands, give us pure hearts, let us not lift our soul to another. Oh God, let us be a generation that sees. We want to have pure and clean worship. So let's go on now and let's go to the second uh, half of this chapter. This is the next vision. This would be the sixth vision, okay? The, what we just went through was the fifth vision. Now we're looking at the sixth vision. Then the angel who was talking with me came forward and said, look up and see what's coming. What is it, I asked, he replied. Then the heavy lead cover was lifted off the basket and there was a woman sitting inside it. And the angel said, the woman's name is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and he closed the heavy lid again. Then I looked up and saw two women flying toward us, gliding on the wind. They had wings like a stork. They picked up the basket, flew into the sky. Where are they taking the basket, I asked the angel. He replied, to the land of Babylonia. I almost said Barcelona right there. <laughs> I caught myself just in time. To the land of Babylonia, where they will build a temple for the basket. And when the temple is ready, they will set the basket there on its pedestal. Circle these words. And let me just kind of give you a little bit of a, just a touch on the symbolism you're looking at. The heavy lead cover, if you'll circle that, if you'll circle the word basket, circle the word the woman or a woman, then you can circle that phrase, the woman's name is wickedness. Notice he pushes her back into the basket and close the lid again. Notice the two flying women they had wings like a stork. A stork was an unclean bird. There's a reason for this. The stork is a strong bird as well. And um, I'm getting a phone call. <laughs> so just let that, I hope that's not bothering our feet or anything like that. And then if you'll circle the word Babylonia, where they're going to take the basket. Now, what's important right here is this. The moral culture of our world is either progressing or regressing. The moral culture and the moral climate of our world is always progressing or regressing. Let me make this real clear as well. As a believer, as an individual believer, my morality, my growth in Christ, my discipleship, my holiness, I'm either growing in peace growing in grace, growing in self-control, or I'm regressing in those things. So this is what I want you, there's movement taking place here. You see a flying scroll that's going to go over the land. It's a gigantic scroll. Now you see two flying women with the wings of a stork. Now this is prophetic vision. This is symbolism. You see these two flying women with the wings of a stork. They're flying and they're going from Jerusalem back to Babylonia. Now, there's a lot going on right here. And for those of you that are ladies, hold on. He's not saying that women are sinful, you know, any more than men are sinful. There's symbolism here, and I hope to kind of get with that. He says, if you'll look, it's a basket for measuring grain, and it's filled with the sins of everyone throughout the land. Now, that basket is important. I want you to think of the word that's used here is the largest basket that we know of that was used in Israel's agricultural cu culture at that time. It's the largest basket, probably anywhere from 8 to 10 gallons. 
So that tells us a lot right there. I don't think it has to do so much with the size, but with the fact that it was the largest of the basket. The other thing I want you to see, remember last week when we looked at the olive trees that were constantly pouring oil into the golden lampstands, okay? You see that God's grace and God's love in chapter four is infinite and unlimited. But this basket, it has a definite measure. It's a definite size. And there is a limit to what God allows. So you are either progressing or regressing. Is the basket full? The basket is not full yet. That's an important thing to remember. The woman was huddled down in there. Second thing I want you to see is the reason that it's not full is God restrains evil. God restrains and holds back evil. When I was writing this message, I went back to a time when I worked for a pastor as an intern, and he wanted me to preach on certain subjects. And he assigned me some tough subjects, and which meant I had to dig, and, and I would, didn't have a desk at the time, and so I would borrow books from him, and, and he taught me the person that won't return a book is worse than an infidel, so I would choose the books, and I would return them to him, and I'd sit on a stool by my bed, and I'd work, scatter them all out on the bed, and I'd work my messages, but he had me write one. I just, I, I could talk about it, but I didn't, I had, didn't have enough life experience to have lived it. And so I remember he pulled me aside, very kind man, and I am so grateful that he was hard and he was tough and, 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 you know, helped me shape my preaching ministry so much then. But he said to me, he says, you have to learn there are many things in the Word of God that you may not have walked through or lived through yet, but you have to have confidence in the Word of the Lord and preach it with faith and confidence, not in your experience, but in God's truth. Amen. That was a revealing statement for me. It was a freeing statement for me. And so tonight, we live in a very blessed land. Amen. I mean, let's be honest. There's a lot of things our culture has really, I am shocked at how quickly the moral yeah. um, corruption in our culture has been taking place. Things are happening at a more rapid pace than I can imagine. There's never been a time that I can discover in history when some of the things that are being honored in our nation and promoted as right have been honored in any other culture. There's never been a time in our national history where Christians are being penalized for standing for their convictions, where people are having to go all the way to the Supreme Court to defend their faith. There's never been a time in our nation where private companies have had the audacity to censor Christians' belief. For instance, the Babylon Bee. Any, are you familiar with the Babylon Bee as yeah. a Christian satire site? I don't follow it. I'm not that big into satire. Paul, I know that you probably are. You probably get the feed every day. You do on your RSS feed. So, But I read in the paper this morning that Twitter had sanctioned the Babylon. Everybody knows it's, it's Christian satire, but they sanctioned them because they didn't like what they had posted. And I thought, how long before I preach a sermon that Facebook or, or YouTube or somebody else decides they're going to censor and say, we can't do that.
So we need to be aware. Are there places in the world much worse, much more violent? Absolutely. Look at Nigeria tonight. Mm -hmm. Are there places in the world where uh, homosexuality, homosexuality is more rampant than what it is in the United States? Yes, absolutely. I can take, I've been to those places. Mm -hmm. Are there places in the world where children are discarded more freely than they are in our abortion laws in the United States? Yes, I've been to those countries. I can take you there. Are there places in the world where child abuse and sexual trafficking and exploitation of children? Yes, I've seen them chained up like animals to be used for the perversions of people who take what they call sex vacations. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you these things, <clears throat> but friends, we cannot give up on America and cocoon ourselves, or to use another phrase, turtle shell ourselves, or become a Christian ghetto as passionate followers of Christ. We have to celebrate God's love by being involved in the community and persuading other people and having these honest heart-to-heart -heart conversations. Comparing what God promises through Psalms 128, for instance, that's just one of many chapters I could refer to, and what sin actually produces in our life. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the confidence we have is this. God is restraining evil. That message that I referred to that I preached on had to do with how God restrains evil. And one of the things that I did not fully understand until that pastor set me down, and he says, when the rapture happens and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is taken out of this world, evil will run rampant because the church is the salt and the light of the world. The church is the place where the word of God is to be preached. And when you see churches cowardly backing off the word of God, questioning the word of God, and wanting the approval of the culture more than they want the approval of the Holy Spirit upon their lives, then you know that that church is moving is regressing as it floats down the river of culture rather than progressing by what going, pressing through with the word, pressing through with prayer, and prevailing against the gates of hell. Jesus said the church would prevail. It's not that hell would prevail, but the church would bust down the gates of hell. So be strong, be courageous, know that God is restraining evil. So let's look a little carefully at this and I'm afraid I'm running out of time again. The heavy lead cover was lifted off the basket, and there was a woman sitting inside it. And the angel said, the woman's name is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and closed the heavy lid again. Lead, lid again. Here's what I want you to see. The woman is probably an idol. Okay? It's probably an idol. Ladies, and I'm, try, you know, I'm trying to be real careful when I say these things. God does refer to sin and people who practice sin that are his people. He does refer to it as the spirit of prostitution and whoredom. But God also refers to wisdom as feminine. Okay? So there are godly women and there are wicked women. There are godly men and there are wicked men. Okay? And you see much more about the ungodliness of men in the Bible than you do the ungodliness of women. Okay? So to the gender people who want to just take this and say that God somehow or another is against women in the church, that is not, this is symbolism. Probably is idolatry. Israel had come back from Babylon. 
I don't think it's religious idolatry, though. Because the two curses written upon the, the flying scroll were sins against God and sins against one another. In Babylon, they were charging high interest rates. In Babylon, you took advantage of people. In Babylon, you know, they swore falsely using God's... There was a lot of things. Read the book of Ezekiel, okay? So I, this is what... I, I think this is more about the idolatry of our hearts. It's not like bowing down to an Asherah uh, idol or something of that. I think it's the idolatry of our hearts. You can disagree with me on that if you like, but... I have really researched this. I, I can't see where that happens. There are some people that do disagree with me on it, and they believe it was, you know, a literal woman. It, you know, I don't think that's what it is. I, it just, to me, it doesn't stand up contextually or with the rest of the passage. The woman's name is Wickedness, and he pushed her back into the basket and closed the heavy lid again. When they lifted that lead lid... And try saying that 50 times when you're trying to do public speaking. When they lifted the lead lid, I wasn't trying to be an alliterator there. They lifted the lead lid, she tried to get out. And the Hebrew indicates there's a struggle going on. She's pushing, struggling. How many of you have felt that struggle going on in your hearts before with sin? No, somebody just crossed their eyes and rolled them at the same time. Yeah, we, we, we deal with this aggressive nature. But the angel then pushed her back in the basket and he closed the lid again. God restrains sin. Now, Babylon is the enemy of God and embraces sin. Babylon has always been the enemy of God. You go all the way back, I believe it's Genesis 11, where Nimrod built a tower up to, you know, to the heavens and God scattered them. And, you know, we've gone through that so many times. Literally, God had told his people to scatter and, and, and the people said, you know, no, we're going to build a city. We're going to make ourselves a name. They built a tower to, for astrological predictions so they could live their life without God. So these two flying women showed up. Does anybody remember the TV show, The Flying Nun? Okay, that's not The Flying Nun here. <laughs> these two flying women show up. Then I looked up and saw two women flying toward us, gliding on the wind. Now, already... You really see, this is symbolism. Here are two women that are flying. Makes me think of the Delta uh, display at Walt Disney World. You know, if I had wings, you could fly, you could fly, you could fly. These two women come flying. They had wings like a stork. Now, a stork is an unclean bird. These women, I don't believe, are angels. Again, this is symbolism. I don't believe they're angels. They had wings like a stork. A stork is known for protecting its young, as well as eating anything in sight that it can get down its mouth. But storks, one of the qualities of them, and I, I have a whole book of, that just deals with the qualities of different animals and, and for how you can find them in the Bible. Incredible. The stork protects its young. I think these women are agents of God. They're taking this woman, this symbolic woman, these two women symbolic, they picked up the basket and they flew into the sky. Talk about UFOs. They flew into the sky 
Let's keep reading. To the land of Babylonia, where they will build a temple for the basket. And when the temple is ready, they will set the basket there on its pedestal. Now, God's not building a temple for sin. That's not what this is about. God is saying to Israel, get this idolatry out of your heart. Treat your neighbor right. Haggai, remember, you have to read Haggai along with Zechariah. But we're looking at Zechariah because Jesus quotes him a lot. It's the most quoted New Testament uh, 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 Old Testament book in the in the New Testament. Zechariah, Revelation, they, they just goes together so well. Zechariah, I think, is saying he's a revival preacher. Remember that. He's a revival preacher. Haggai is seeing that the temple gets built. Zechariah is dealing with their hearts. He's saying, get the sin out of your heart. Get the sin out of your life. How do you do that? Through confession and repentance and abandoning the sin. Babylon, on the other hand, will welcome this. Babylon will welcome this. So let me see if I can make a cultural application right here. I wouldn't have made this application when I lived down south. But we frequently see the unions and the auto industry battling it out, don't we? There are strikes. There are prolonged strikes. And so the... The auto companies will act like they've got no money. And the union workers will act like they're the poorest paid people on the planet. Finally, they come to an agreement. Sometimes the government has to get involved. But then inevitably, you're going to read a newspaper article about the immense profits and the immense salaries of the people in the auto, in the auto business itself. Then you're going to read about a corruption case in the union. Okay? They would have got along great in Babylon. I mean, Babylon would encourage this kind of culture. Now, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I'm just saying they would have got along great in Babylon. Lie, cheat, steal, kill, whatever you got to do, you know, to get ahead. Because the dollar rules. Remember, Jesus talked about money like it was a god. You cannot serve both God and money, he said. Money is, money is just a tool. Money is neutral. I mean, if you stop and think about that, the person that really doesn't understand would go, Jesus, have you lost your bananas? You know, are you, are you off your rocker? We all know money's not a good. But that idol, that hole that it gets on our hearts, that it has, he says, you've got to choose to serve God or choose to enrich yourself. So God restrains evil. Babylon embraces evil. Now, here's the question that we have to start thinking about. What am I embracing? What am I holding dear to my heart? And, and look at me for just a second, beloved. Hear what I'm Remember what I said Sunday morning. We believe what we do. We believe what we do. There's a financial phrase called assets under management. Okay? And assets under management just simply means everything that you've been blessed with that's under your management. Some people look at their checking account and go, oh, I'm poor. But when they look at their assets, you know, they're much better off than what they thought they were. There is a degree where you have to stop and think about God says, if you will trust him, he will prosper you. Your wife will flourish. Your children will be vigorous. Imagine all those little olive shoots springing up around your table and your grandchildren springing up around your table. Go back to Psalms 128 and see 
that the house of the man who loves God and loves his word, it flourishes and it prospers because it's not our God. The Bible says that God's blessings make us rich and he adds no sorrow to it. You don't have to be afraid that Babylon will get ahead of you. If you will serve God, God will make you the head and not the tail. You will be blessed. I love this. You will be blessed and you're going in and you're going out. Come on, Victory. That ought to make somebody happy tonight. Well, number four, and we do have to stop. God is abundantly gracious and patient before he judges. I know that's a long sentence, but I, I knew I had to wrap this up. Here's a powerful verse I want you to think about. For the sins, I'm somebody just asked, God is abundantly gracious and patient before he judges. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. That's a powerful phrase. God says to Abraham, if you'll remember, I think if you'll go back and read the story, he says, your descendants are going to go into the land of Egypt for 400 years. He said, but they cannot possess the land that I want to give them because the sins of the Amorites have not reached their full portion yet. God not only told Abraham how long they would be in the land, they were in the land 400 years. God knows the beginning and the ending. He's the Alpha and the Omega. But he is patient with cultures. And because God knew they would never repent of their sin, he said, then in 400 years, you will go in and take the land. My question tonight to America, my question to you and to me is, how long before our sins are complete? The only answer I know is revival, which is what Zechariah is trying to preach here, and keeping short accounts with God. I love reading evangelist Billy Sunday's sermons. My evangelism professor, when I was an 18-year-old college student, he put me on to Billy Sunday. Here's one of my favorite Billy Sunday quotes. I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm toothless, I'll go, I'll gum it to death until I go home to glory, and it goes home to perdition. I love that quote. He's saying, as an old man, I'm going to fight sin. So, friends, this passage is about why God hates sin, what sin does to us, and I've tried to give you just one illustration out of literally so many in the Bible of what the blessings of God are when we serve Him. I love you. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to... Uh, have a, we're going to have a Q&A session right here, and um, I hope you'll join me Sunday morning as well. As a matter of fact, Sunday morning, I'm going to preach about how God energizes us, so join me for that. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for everyone that's here tonight, and as we study your word, we pray that we'll not just be hearers of the word, but we'll be doers of the word. Lord, help us never to be afraid to come into your presence and confess what you already know and ask forgiveness for what you stand ready to forgive, knowing that Christ has already paid the price for it. And finally, Father, help us to love our world enough, our nation, our community, our subdivision, that we will be salt and light. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen, amen, amen and amen. amen. God bless you. Good night.